Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, the on-location Peter King Podcast. I'm out on the West Coast this week uh, doing some family things. I saw the 49ers and Cowboys on Sunday night in Santa Clara. We're going to discuss that at length, but probably more so with me and my co-pilot, Miles Simmons, probably more so a look at what sort of lies ahead for these two franchises uh, entering the last 12 games of the season. We are also going to be joined later in the podcast by Michael McCambridge, author of a really good new book about how the 70s reshaped our sporting landscape. And what is so amazing to me when I read this book, it's called The Big Time. And what's so amazing, and uh, Miles, right at the end of our pod, before we introduce, or at the end of our second segment, before we introduce Michael McCambridge, I'm going to ask you about, to me, one of the weirdest juxtapositions. And that is, on the first day of this decade, on January 1, 1970, an all-white team the University of Texas, won the college football mythical national championship. And 10 days later, two extremely integrated teams in Kansas City and Minnesota played for the Super Bowl. So I found that to be, that's the one thing about this book and the descriptions of those two things that really has stuck with me. But we'll get into a little bit of that later in the pod. But Miles and I are going to break down the 49ers and Cowboys, and we're going to talk about two other things in this podcast at some length. Number one, uh, I rank my teams 1 to 32 in Football Morning in America this week. Miles is going to tell me where I'm stark raving mad. And then we are also going to discuss, and look, we can probably pick out one month into the season because that's where we are right now. This season started one month ago this week. And one month into the season, man, the injuries have reshaped the NFL. You look at the New York Jets, no Aaron Rodgers after the fourth play of the season. You look at the Buffalo Bills. I would say their two best defensive players. Now, Matt Milano, and obviously last week, Tredavious White, the corner, 
uh, Tredavious White gone for the year, Matt Milano possibly gone for the year, probably gone for the year. Uh, and the Bills are simply diminished. And then, you know, the Minnesota Vikings, with whatever the immediate short-term and long-term future this year is of Justin Jefferson. So we'll get into all of those things later in the pod. But, Miles, welcome. And I I really, I, I want to get your thoughts on what I think surprised, honestly, America on Sunday night. The with how bad the Dallas Cowboys looked and how overpowering the San Francisco 49ers looked. It's interesting, Peter, because a lot of times one game is not necessarily all that representative of what teams are or what they are not. But I just I felt like with this one, coaches talk about complete games all the time. Like, oh, we want to play a complete game and we want to do this and we want to make sure we're running the ball and we stop the run and we make plays when they're there to be made and we get turnovers. And and all of those things happened for the San Francisco 49ers on Sunday. And that to me is kind of my biggest takeaway. When a team can get one of those proverbial complete games against another team that we think of as one of the better teams in the league, that says a lot about where the winning team is. And, you know, with you've got the 49ers right now, it's hard to find a place where they are weak. I mean, you know, some people I want to say quarterback and you delved, uh, you know, went into that at length in your column. And it's like, not really. You can't look at what Brock Purdy is doing and say that right now he's the weak link. Or if he is the weak link, then, man, that's an extremely high floor on what counts for weakness when it comes to the 49ers. So I think the the Cowboys will be okay. I almost feel like it's a little bit inevitable if we're going to write the script, you know, of the NFL season that we will see this 49ers Cowboys matchup in the postseason again. But I mean, if you're looking for what is the best team in the league right now, it's the 49ers and then it's kind of everybody else. I think you're right. Uh, You know, I remember something a little bit odd, and I don't know why I just thought of this when you were saying that, but I remember last year during the playoffs, I covered the 49ers-Dallas game, and obviously San Francisco won that game 19-12. to Brock Purdy didn't play particularly well in that game, but he got them to the NFC Championship game. And I had seen a lot of Purdy late last season. And I remember, I I, I took great care before I wrote this, but I said in my column, going forward, I'd rather have Brock Purdy as my quarterback than Dak Prescott. Hmm. And there were two reasons I said that. Number one, I really felt that Dak Prescott was going to be an anchor on the franchise uh, with his salary. And obviously, whatever they're going to pay him, the upcoming salary, okay, which was absolutely, you know, it's it's now still the sort of Damocles that that uh, you know is over the head of this Cowboys franchise. But I also saw something late last season and in the playoffs that I think is very very notable. Dak Prescott, very simply, has not been great in big games; just hasn't. And this was a big game for the Dallas Cowboys for a lot of reasons. And not only was he not great, but he was totally, absolutely ineffective. 
You can give some blame to Mike McCarthy in this game for not doing after the game, you know, and sort of surveying the, the Niners locker room and talking to people. One person put this question to me. Why don't they have some design plays for Dak Prescott out of the pocket? Why have him be just a sitting duck? And Mike McCarthy is a very big pocket quarterback, get rid of the ball quickly, West Coast offense guy. And in my opinion, in today's football, with the front, especially that San Francisco has, why don't you move Dak Prescott? And I think Mike McCarthy, I'm not saying he has to reinvent himself, but when you play a team with the front like that, even though Dak really is much more comfortable in the pocket, and he's good in the pocket, you know, I'm not saying that Dak Prescott's a bad quarterback because I don't think he is a bad quarterback, but I think we might have seen Dak Prescott's ceiling. So that's kind of, and then the other thing, obviously, you know, is the money. You got Brock Purdy for another couple of years now at the at the low salary that you know, and that allowed them honestly to go sign Javon Hargrave. Now Hargrave hasn't been the huge impact guy that the 49ers uh, have wanted so far, but he's made some plays, and I think he's going to be a huge difference maker for this team down the stretch. But Miles, my overall thought, the reason why I kind of brought all this up is that I think both teams learned a lot from Sunday. And I think it could be dangerous for the Dallas Cowboys, but I in no way think that the Cowboys uh, are done, are finished, can't play well. They had a bad day. They picked a bad day to have a bad day. And and this is what I always remind people of after a game like that, that Dallas is a good team. And for people who've said it's over for them, tear apart, do that. You know, that's fan stuff. I look at Dallas. They're a good team that had a bad day against a great team. Mm -hmm. And I just remind everybody, opening day, 2003, 20 years ago, last month, the New England Patriots went to Buffalo and lost 31 to nothing. And everybody thought, well, you know, Patriots are fluky. They won a Super Bowl, had a good year, and 2002 and now 2003 this is it for them this is their comeuppance this Brady he's just a guy all that and I just remember thinking because I covered that game and I remember thinking man big moment for Bill Belichick he's got to get his team back they got it back obviously won their second Super Bowl that year and not so coincidentally last game of that season New England 31 Buffalo nothing so, you know, things have a way of turning around, and I do not think we ought to throw the Dallas Cowboys out with the garbage. No, and look, they, they come out here to Los Angeles next week, and, you know, they play the Chargers on Monday night. I, I think that that's going to be an interesting game for several reasons. A, because, you know, you've got your former offensive coordinator now on the other sideline calling plays for Justin Herbert if you are the Dallas Cowboys, but also, you know, you want to respond to something like yeah, that. Right. And definitely, I, I, I think, you know, the chess match, if we want to call it that between Dan Quinn and Kellen Moore is going to be very interesting, but also look, if you are Mike McCarthy and you're Dak Prescott and you are that Dallas Cowboys offense, you want to show that that performance that you had, you know, in Santa Clara was not you. 
So I think that there are a lot of motivations for the Dallas Cowboys to have a much better start next week and a much better finish, obviously, because the finish will probably matter a lot more than it did on Sunday night. I mean, conversely, though, if you're the 49ers, you know, you go across the country and you're going to the Cleveland Browns next week and you, know, you don't really know what that quarterback situation is going to look like because Deshaun Watson apparently still isn't practicing, at least as of Monday. So that's another one where it's like, is this a trap game, right? Because you don't know right. what the quarterback is going to be. And because, you know, uh, Thompson Robinson, look, he did not play well in his first start, probably in large part because he probably wasn't expecting to play throughout the week because Deshaun Watson thought he was going to be able to play. It turned out he wasn't going to be able to on Sunday. So look, the, the 49ers should go to Cleveland and beat the Browns, right? But, if they're not on their P's and Q's, then that game could be closer than one might think, especially because of the way Cleveland's defense can play. And I think we've seen that this year. So I want to, I, I do want to touch on Brock Purdy a little bit, but first I want to touch on something in the locker room after the game that to me is a clue about who these 49ers are. So everybody looks at Trent Williams and thinks this is either the best left tackle in football or certainly one of the top two or three. And after the game, you know, Trent Williams is basically, he is the or one of the team spokespeople. He's excellent. He's very analytical. Uh, He puts things in excellent perspective. And so after the game, everybody was trying to get him to say, essentially, man, you guys have arrived. You guys are here. You get, you know, and all this. And he goes, listen, in this league, it's a bunch of one game seasons. And this week, everybody is going to say, oh, my God, what a great game. This is fantastic and everything. He said, we're already thinking about that great pass rusher in Cleveland. Yeah. He said, because we gotta we gotta block Miles Garrett. Mm-hmm. And and again, look, I think some people are probably jumping off the Cleveland bandwagon pretty quick. And I get that. And if Dorian Thompson Robinson plays in this game, uh, you know, instead of Deshaun Watson, and look, I don't I don't even know what Deshaun Watson is. Nobody does. Yeah. But we saw what, at least right now, what Dorian Thompson Robinson was. Uh, you know, it, it, for the Browns last week. And and honestly, he's just not ready. You know, there's some rookies who are ready. There's C.J. Stroud. There are others who aren't ready. Um, and so, but 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 anyway, I, I just I just wanted to make the point that the 49ers have got this right. Kyle Shanahan twisted himself into a pretzel standing with me after the game Hour after the game, saying, I said, man, I said, how good are you? He said, well, we're 5-0. and But he goes, this is such a long season. We played great tonight, but this is such a long season. And he's got the perspective of somebody who understands that it could all disappear in a week or two. And, you know, nobody gets extra credit for winning by 42 to 10. Right. You know, it's one win. Um, but, but Miles, I think the one thing I did want to say about Dallas that 
kind of looking ahead with Dallas is the thing that would bother me a little bit about this game is that they never really got C.D. Lamb going. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tony Pollard coughed it up early when the ball got punched out uh, by Fred Warner. And, uh, you know, they made a couple of really uncharacteristic defensive mistakes. You know what I, I, Miles, you may not even remember this, but in the first half early on, J. Ron Curse, the safety, lined up in the neutral zone. And he got flagged for it. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the play, you say, how in the world can a thinking football player have lined up basically clearly, not only in the neutral zone, but it looked like he had one foot offside. Yeah. Yeah, he's just standing there. What it doesn't he have anybody saying, hey, get back a step? Does it? I mean, it was it was ridiculous. That was Dallas sloppy in this game. Yeah. Okay. Whereas San Francisco. How about midway through the second quarter? First sna- uh, pass of this series, da- uh, uh, Brock Purdy throws a ball, one of his worst throws on the night. He threw it behind Brandon Ayuk. But then he he gets Brandon Ayuk for 40 yards down the, down the left sideline. Great throw, great catch, hold it. So now it's third and 13. And what does he do? He goes downfield again to Debo Samuel. And, you know, it was gain of whatever, 25 or whatever it was. But it, my, my only point is the 49ers, the very few times they had messes, they cleaned them up and they went on to play well. The Cowboys never could clean up their messes. Yeah. Never in this entire game. They did nothing consistently this entire game. Mike McCarthy, Dan Quinn. You know, you've got to get a hold of, I honestly, and I don't mean to embarrass J. Ron Kurz because he's a good player, but Dan Quinn has got to show that play to his team and say, guys, you know, we can't be doing stuff like this. And so I don't know, when you look at the Cowboys, did you find them sloppy the other night? Absolutely. I mean, it was, it was a Murphy's law game, right? Whatever can go wrong did go wrong. And it, you know, Dak was saying that it was such a humbling loss and, you know, you, you don't expect things to happen like that, et cetera, et cetera. You, know, you have a week of practice and all of this. And I think that that's probably true, right? Everybody goes into a game usually thinking, hey, we had a good week of practice. You know, I feel good about the plan. This is a big game for us. And the Cowboys, especially, they didn't shy away from the notion that this was a big game. So I don't think that, they maybe had like a bad week of practice or whatever. Maybe they did and they elevated this game too far in their mind. I don't know because I'm not there every day. But I I think one of the things that when you just look at it from afar, you have to say like, hey, man, you don't necessarily want to burn the tape. And Mike McCarthy alluded to this. You don't burn the tape, but you also want to look at it and say, this is not us. And you want to point to things on that tape that illustrate why this is not us. And I think that example that you're pointing to of lining up basically offside, like that's one of the things where you expect the Cowboys to be on their stuff more, on their details more than that. So I think going forward, if that's what the message is, like, hey, we did this, this is not us, let's play to our standard, then the Cowboys can be all right. 
Look, the Cowboys have beaten up on the bad teams of the Eastern Seaboard. They have. Yeah, they beat the Patriots by 35. They beat the Jets by 20. They beat the Giants by 40. But, you know, now you have to ask yourself, okay, going forward, the Chargers are not a great team, but they are a good team. And that is going to be a tough game. The Los Angeles Rams next after the bye, not a great team. I love the feistiness of Scrappy. this, of this ri- They oh, yeah. Look, we all, <laughs> we all thought the Rams were a finesse team. They're no finesse team. No. They're a punch-you-in-the-mouth team right yeah, now. And I kind of, I think the Rams are one of these teams. They're going to have two colossal upsets the rest of the year. I don't know who they're going to beat. They might beat Dallas. But what I'm saying is this, in the immortal words of C.J. Stroud, we're nobody's fish. <laughs> and uh, so I, I think the Rams are, and then Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So, and look, then they get into a little bit of the soft underbelly, Giants, Panthers, Washington. But hey, look, you know, there aren't many teams in the NFL, maybe no teams in the NFL that have a tougher five-game stretch after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. How about this, Miles? Seattle at home Thursday night. Nice. Then the mini buy home with Philadelphia Sunday night. Then at Buffalo in what could be a weather game. Then at Miami on Christmas Eve could be a different kind of weather game. Yeah. And then Detroit at home uh, on that long New Year's Eve weekend of football. And I don't know, Miles. Uh, this the Cowboys have a chance to get well on on a pretty soft three game stretch Giants Panthers Washington but after that I mean every week is is tough for them so to me very very important week this week in getting this team back right uh, for a very interesting and tough stretch run let's say two things about the 49ers. I'll talk about their schedule in a second. But Brock Purdy, um, he really interests me right now. And we talked about this a couple of times last year. But I think one of the things that we didn't give Purdy enough credit for a year ago was coming into the NFL with one of the best resumes a young quarterback can have. He started 47 games in a Power 5 conference many, many Saturdays, many of them as an underdog in a gigantic and voracious state, well, not voracious, but but in, in a gigantic stadium full of people hating your guts, like Norman, Oklahoma, Austin, Texas. So, I mean, those are 47 games that he had that really, and, and I, you know, this is a whole other subject, but that Trey Lance never had, you know, <laughs> Yes. Uh, Trey Lance had a lot of South Dakota states in there. So, but, but, but anyway, not to be critical of South Dakota state or anybody on Trey Lance's schedule, but it was a tougher schedule, more years, you know, basically almost four full seasons, uh, three full seasons, basically of, uh, you know, for, uh, for Brock Purdy. And the one other thing that, I really like about Purdy. And as I wrote my column, I don't know how you can say anything else other than right now. Anyway, he's 
playing the best. You can say, well, it's all Shanahan, it's this, that, whatever. He's playing the best of any quarterback in football right now. And I found it very interesting the other day. Great note by Next Gen Stats. Fantastic. In the eight years that Next Gen Stats has been alive and doing their thing, this is the first game ever that a quarterback threw four touchdown passes out of the pocket. In other words, when you're out of the tackle box, which Brock Purdy was on all four of his touchdown passes, he that's where all of those passes originated from. That's one thing. But I also think in a in not a teeth-gnashing way, he's a bit of a perfectionist. He talked to me about the throw he missed in the first half to Brandon Ayuk. He threw it behind him, and he said, I want to hit that, and Kyle Shanahan gave him a chance to hit that exact same play in the second half, and this time he threw it right over the linebacker, Leighton Van Der Esch, who must have missed it by eight or ten inches. He was very close to it, and he caught it, and, and he sort of Personally, anyway, he redeemed himself, although even if that one's incomplete, he still has a great game. And, you know, as I wrote the other day, look, I, you know, he's not better than Patrick Mahomes. We all know that. But he happens to be playing better than Patrick Mahomes right now in this season. I mean, his passer rating's 27 points higher than Mahomes. And uh, anyway, I, I don't know. Give, give me Give me a couple of thoughts about about Purdy and then we'll get in briefly to the Niners schedule well you know I I think every quarterback is a product of their system sometimes that's good sometimes that's bad and I know that we think of you know system quarterback game managers pejorative words and obviously Brock Purdy is making plays right and he's making plays sometimes out of structure but mainly in structure and when the offense is is well designed as Kyle Shanahan's. That's kind of exactly just what you want your quarterback to do, right? Make the plays that are there to be made. Hit the wide open touchdown that Kyle Shanahan will scheme because he has a tendency to do that and has had a tendency to do that basically wherever he's been. So that's the thing that Brock Purdy does well. He executes the offense. And I don't think that that's such a horrible thing to say. I think that most quarterbacks, like I said, are, are are in the partnership with their offensive head coach or play caller if it's their offensive coordinator, right? You have to be able to make this thing work between you. I mean, look at what's going on, let's say, in Chicago right now, where it, I mean, Justin Fields has played better over the last two games, but then look at the two defenses that they've been playing, right? But before that, you know, you're getting Justin Fields talking about how uh, some of the things that are making him overthink are coaching, right? And when that happens, you say, well, what is the coaching teaching you, right? What are the coaching points? Why are they having you think so much when you're on the field? If you look at what Brock Purdy and Kyle Shanahan are doing and they're doing it together, Brock Purdy's not thinking too much when he's on the field, whether that's a product of his experience in college, whether it's just his aptitude for Kyle Shanahan's offense, whether it is just Shanahan presenting things in a way that is easily digestible for Purdy to understand. I don't know, but those two are working together in partnership and that's what makes this great. So I don't... I don't think it's so horrible to say that Purdy is executing Kyle Shanahan's offensive system as well as we've ever seen. I mean, maybe aside from Matt Ryan, but even then I think, you know, you look at 
what these two quarterbacks are done. Like, you know, Matt Ryan, I'm saying in 2016 when he won the MVP and Brock Purdy right now, like you kind of are seeing similar results probably. And I've just thought of that. So I haven't looked at the numbers, but that's the thing that I would go back to. Right. And you've got guys like Ayuk and Samuel and McCaffrey and George Kittle, who gets three touchdowns. You have all these weapons. That's why the scheme works as well as it does too. So it's, it all works together. You know, we can give Brock Purdy proper credit while also saying, yeah, Kyle Shanahan's doing a hell of a job scheming up the offense, but you still got to go out there and execute it. Miles, two things about the Shanahan offense. Number one, um, they lead the NFL this year. I know this is a weird stat, but it's another next-gen stat. They lead the NFL in uh, in – in breaking roots run uh and targeted by the quarterback and i yeah. i only i only tell you that because i want you to think of who debo samuel is who brandon Ayuk is mm-hmm. and you might be surprised you watch the little short area quickness of george kittle it's better than most tight ends and the in breaking route honestly uh, is where quick people, very athletic people, and understand this other word, precise, precise. These are precise root runners. Yeah. And Kyle Shanahan insists on that, or you're not playing for him. Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing. And then the second thing that I think is really interesting is that the 49ers this year are second in among all teams in the NFL <clears throat> in number of snaps with motion. And everybody said, oh, who cares? Everybody runs motion. Well, you know, in the CFL, you can get guys a running start because you can actually be running toward the line of scrimmage when the play starts. But but that's not what this is about. What this is about, honestly, is being able to make sure that nobody, and Mike McDaniel's very good at this too with Tyreek Hill, nobody gets a really clean shot on the receiver before the ball is coming off the line of scrimmage or before the, the ball is snapped rather and the receivers come off the line of scrimmage. So I think those two things are important, but anybody who runs a lot of motion will tell you that you still have to be precise in your route running. And I think that's one of the things that this team does very well. Just a quick note before we break here is from late October, Till early December. Here's the six game schedule with a bye in the middle of it, or, or early on rather. Uh, here's a six game schedule that is pretty formidable for the 49ers Cincinnati at home, at Jacksonville, Tampa at home, sort of a sneaky, tough game perhaps, at Seattle, at Philadelphia, Seattle at home. And so if you look at those, you know, you got three home, three away. You got two very tough division games with Seattle. Uh, You've got maybe the second best team in football on the road in a place that's very hard to play in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. I I mean, look, it's not going to be easy for the 49ers to come out unscathed and to win home field advantage. I still think that, you know, it's going to be hard for them to do that with Philadelphia not having played its best 
still sitting there and probably going to be a little bit better as time goes on. But I just wanted to give you, I thought in the first part of the podcast, it would be good to sort of delve into both the Cowboys and the 49ers, where they stand and where they're going. When we come back in the Peter King podcast, we will focus on the rest of the NFL, some injuries that really have hurt teams. And 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 then we're going to get to uh, Michael McCambridge with his book, The Big Time. So we'll be back after this. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. So, Miles Simmons, I think one of the things that really has happened early in this season, probably as much as any season in recent years, there are always injuries. But man, there have been some very, very big ones early this year. Uh, Going back to the fourth play of the season for the New York Jets, obviously, Aaron Rodgers uh, out almost certainly for the year with his Achilles. Um, And then, you know, the Buffalo Bills, who I think I picked them to go to the Super Bowl before the year. I'm I'm a little bit shaky on that one right now. But in the last two weeks, they've lost uh, Tredavious White to an Achilles injury uh, and uh, Matt Milano to multiple uh, leg injuries. And we're not sure whether Milano will return this year. We'll see. But those are devastating injuries. And then in the wake of the games in week five, we found out that Justin Jefferson might be uh, going on, uh, might be going away for a month with injury with an injury because I think what happened with Justin Jefferson, you know, he he hurt a hamstring on Sunday, and when you hurt a hamstring and you're playing a burst explosive position. I really question whether you're going to be back after four weeks. You know, it's the degree of strain, you, you know, you just don't know. And and to me, that is a devastating injury for a team that's struggling. And look, I don't think the, four, the Vikings are going to be in contention for the top pick in the draft or anything like that. But I do think that this while maybe not being a death knell for the for a one in four team, it's it's about as bad as it gets. It, let's let's take those in inverse order. Give me your thought on the Vikings without Jefferson, and then we'll go to Buffalo. Well, the Vikings are, are really disappointing to me so far this year. I mean, I I just I look at that team and you wonder, man, what's the disconnect? What what's happening that every game you're fumbling? I mean, it was the first yeah. play from scrimmage in this game. 
they must be emphasizing ball security because the first four games of the season, you had you had multiple turnovers in every single game. So at least in this one, you know, you only had one. But still, I just it is disappointing to me that you're looking at a Vikings team that had the best receiver in football, right? In Justin Jefferson. And I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say that. And you have a quarterback who's a veteran in Kirk Cousins. And yeah, the contract situation is up in the air. But you have to play better than they've played. And you can't have games with multiple turnovers. And you can't have games where you start against the Kansas City Chiefs. And I know their offense hasn't been as cohesive as we expect it to be, but it's still the Kansas City Chiefs, and it's still Patrick Mahomes, and it's still Andy Reid, and it's still Travis Kelsey as long as he's healthy. You can't start the game with a fumble. You just can't. So that, to me, makes them one of the most disappointing teams in the NFL this year because, yeah, I know that, their defense wasn't good last year and we expect regression because they won all these one position games, et cetera, et cetera. They had like one of the greatest comebacks of all time, you know, against Jeff Saturday and the Colts. But at the same time, you just expect more out of them. And so when you see Justin Jefferson now get hurt and he's going to be out for at least four games while on injured reserve. And I think you're right, especially with wide receivers and hamstrings, you know, the cliche is that they're tricky. It's like, it's because they are right. You don't know exactly how long it's going to take for that thing to heal, especially because everybody is different. And when you play the game at the level that Justin Jefferson does with the explosion that he does, he needs that hamstring to be as healthy as possible. So I don't know where the Vikings are going to go from here. I think it means that KJ Osborne and Jordan Addison certainly have to elevate their play even more. TJ Hawkinson, when you get your hands on the ball, you got to make sure you secure it. So those are the things we're going to see. And how is Kirk Cousins going to react to not having one of the best receivers in football out there? I don't know. But I mean, when you start against this stretch against the division rival like the Bears, you better come out and have a much better showing than at least you did in the early going there against Kansas City. The best receiver in football, in my opinion. But here's the other, uh, you know, here's the other issue. Adam Schefter raised this uh, on Twitter or X, whatever, on Tuesday, and I thought it was really valid, really good. And that is, and I'll, I'll, this is Schefter's tweet. If the Vikings don't win games and stay competitive, what is Jefferson's incentive to rush back? when he didn't land the contract that he wanted. And so, you know, let's say the, the the Vikings, whenever he is deemed healthy enough to come back are whatever, two and seven. You know, you have to ask yourself, I mean, how how much is he going to stretch himself, to pound himself, to make sure that he's, he's going to be, uh, you know, he's going to be a factor in games that really are not going to mean anything. So that'll be interesting to watch. The Buffalo thing, I think, is interesting because sometimes, look, you could argue that Jefferson's the most important player on the Vikings, along with Kirk Cousins, but certainly Aaron Rodgers was the most important player on the Jets. And now you look at the Buffalo Bills, the two most important players on that defense, Tredavious White, best cover guy by far. And Matt Milano, the middle linebacker, who I think would have gotten strong consideration this year for defensive player of the year, had his year continued the way it started in the first four weeks. But obviously he gets hurt. We don't know how long he's out for, but it could be the season. Miles, 
you know, to me, this is really going to test Sean McDermott, you know, who uh, has basically learned his first job in football, coaching under the, the late Jim Johnson, the defensive coordinator in Philadelphia, and obviously coaching on Andy Reid's staff. These are guys who dearly and and passionately have the next man up philosophy. But this is really going to test Sean McDermott's coaching acumen. Oh, no doubt. And look, I mean, he is now calling that defense after whatever happened with Leslie Frazier. And, you know, he left the team and then wanted a new job, but then didn't get a new job. All that is still a little confusing to me. But I think when you look at the Bills, it's still going to come down to can they dominate teams on offense? Because if they're dominating teams on offense, then, you know, the pass rush gets to get going, right? You get Von Miller, who's now back and was playing on a pitch count um, against the Jaguars in London, but you get him going and other guys like Rousseau going. Like, they've shown that their front can really affect teams. But when you lose your best player on the second level and your best player on the third level of defense in consecutive weeks, it absolutely is a blow. And I don't know that people can truly appreciate what Matt Milano brings to the defense because he's such a sideline to sideline guy. And, you know, in this age of statistics and all that, it's not like you're seeing when, when linebackers make a bunch of tackles, it's like, Oh, that's nice. He made a bunch of tackles, but it's not, you don't necessarily see how a linebacker influences and affects different plays just based off of statistics. Right. I, I think that there's just so much more, that is on film and that, you know, you have to look at with the eye test in order to really determine that. So that's something that, you know, especially when it's the leader of your defense as a middle linebacker, heart and soul of that unit, you, you take that out and you're missing a lot. So that's going to be a really interesting thing to see how Buffalo adjusts and how they are moving forward defensively, because I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, it's not going to be as good as if Matt Milano is in there. That's pretty clear. But Buffalo, as long as the offense is humming and as long as they're avoiding the ugly turnovers, I think they're still going to be all right. Miles, before we go to uh, before we go to our guest, Michael McCambridge, I just wanted to hit you with something that we haven't talked about that. Uh, I haven't warned you about or anything like that, but I, I want to ask you because this really occurred to me watching Sunday's games, particularly, I didn't get to watch them as closely as I normally did. Had a couple of family things before the game, uh, before the game I covered Sunday night, but, and so I'm going to ask you this, give me the one player who you're worried about right now. I'm going to give you mine first, so I'll give you a minute to think about yours. But give me the one player in the NFL right now that you have some significant concern about. I'll give you mine. Mine is the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, Jordan Love. And it, it, I don't think in any way that Jordan Love is a lost case. I, in no way do I think that. But here's here's what bugs me a little bit about Jordan Love, okay? First of all, he throws the ball late. Mm-hmm. And when that when I when I say that, I mean that you know, you saw you you've seen a couple of times early this year a receiver open clearly and waiting, 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 
and then the ball comes, but it's just too late. It's too late. And that bothers me. And the second thing I think that bothers me a little bit is that, hey, look, he's played well. He's had some big moments early on, but the Packers are two and three. And now the pressure is really going to come on after the three interception game Monday in Las Vegas. The pressure is really going to come on. Look, Jordan Love's never had to deal with pressure like this before. He played at Utah State. He's never had one of the greatest fan bases in sports in the world starting to get down on him. The question is, can he handle that? Can he just go to work every day and be calm, cool, and just say, okay, none of that matters. All that matters is the next game. Give me your guy who you're worried about a little bit. Well, I'll say this on Jordan Love, too. I mean, that that performance on Monday night against the Raiders was not good, and it's the kind of performance that makes you question things. And each of those three interceptions I thought was really bad. I mean, the first one to Spillane, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know what he was looking at, right? Because yeah, not only yeah. was Spillane there, but also the corner was extremely undercutting that route. And then he also had a safety over the top. I mean, what, what are you looking at? The second interception, sort of the same thing. Receivers got bracketed coverage, safety over the top, cornerback underneath. He's not open. Third th- third interception, so late down that sideline. Yeah. And Christian Watson right. didn't do a very good job of, you know, playing defense on that either. But, you know, when the receiver throws his hand up, that means ball needs to come now, right? It's not, oh, let's wait another three seconds. So that – and the standard's got to be higher for Jordan Love because he's in his fourth year, right? It's not like he's a rookie. We can't have rookie mistakes when you've been – sitting back and watching as long as he has it that so yeah the 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 Packers QB and Jordan Love that's a concern I'm also concerned about Daniel Jones because oh, yeah. I don't know if he's going to make it through the season if he keeps taking the pounding that he's taking I mean right he's already dealing with the neck injury and you know the, the Giants are apparently optimistic that he's going to be able to play this week I don't know if I would necessarily want to play against Buffalo since they're coming off you know an important loss that they just had across the pond and they're not necessarily going to be very happy about it when they come back to play in Orchard Park on Sunday night but like that's one where because the offensive line and the pass protection generally has been so bad for the New York football giants, I don't know if Daniel Jones is going to make it. And so he's not playing well, but nothing is going well around him either in that scheme. So that, yeah, that that's a guy that I, I have my concerns about right now. I should have mentioned also when we talk about injuries, Devon Achan, uh, Achan, excuse me. Um, obviously, uh, there's a possibility he could go on IR. Uh, he tweaked a knee on Sunday. Um, you know, this this kid's amazing. He's averaging yeah. 12.1 a carry. <laughs> Who averages 12.1 a carry? Unbelievable. It's Unbelievable. amazing. Yeah. But but anyway, uh, that's, that's, I think, uh, a little encapsulation of, first of all, one day this, this year, we're going to get into this, but I'll tell you, the people who call for 18-game schedule, look at what the first five games have wrought, okay? We're not even a third of the way through the season. Yeah. And you've got basically probably uh, certainly two of the biggest 10 names in football in Justin Jefferson and Aaron Rodgers out. And look at all these other really, really good players who are mm-hmm. out as well. Anyway, let's get to Michael McCambridge. So, I really have great respect for Michael McCambridge, and he wrote a book that isn't all about football, 
but it has some really interesting football stuff in there. It's called The Big Time, and I'm going to get to my conversation with Michael McCambridge right now. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic, because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. I know how to run a hair salon, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner, too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. Happy to be joined now by Michael McCambridge, author of The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America. And so, Michael, I I'm was fascinated by a few things in this book. I mean, this was really right in my wheelhouse. I was in high school starting in 1971, and I was a gigantic sports fan. But what really hit home to me about sports in general is the importance of the newspaper. Oh, yes. And how vitally important the newspaper was and how different it is from today. Because for people who don't know, you describe a scene in this book where uh, if you lived in Kansas City and the morning paper went to press and it was the seventh inning of a Royals game, there would be what was called a bold face bulletin Yep, on the front of the sports section bulletin. The Royals and Red Sox were tied three to three after seven innings. And, uh, you know, but they didn't say, you know what they say today for full game coverage, go to Kansas city star.com. Right, but there right. was none of that back then. There, and so you describe this scene that I can tell you, and I'm going to tell you my story about it, starting in 1980 at the Cincinnati Inquirer. You describe this scene that some surly desk man, the phone <laughs> would be ringing at, you know, 1145 at night, just as the paper was going to bed. And, hey, what the Royals do tonight? Or what's the score of the A's out on the West Coast? They would, and he might give them a score, might not. But there was no other way to know. So, Michael, right. tell me what the sports world was like a half century ago in trying to actually follow sports. Well, I think that was that was just it. And if you were in the Eastern time zone or the Central time zone, it was doubly difficult. And one of the things that was clear to me in doing research for this book was how much more slavishly local all newspapers were at the beginning of the decade than they were by the end of the decade. And a lot of things contributed to that. Certainly um, sports moving into prime time on network television helped sort of broaden the audience for nationwide sports events. Um, but yes, it was it was an ordeal just to get a final score. And it was this you know, if you were in New York or a big city like Chicago, there might be a, a news radio station that would have sports scores every 20 minutes. But right. if you were in a smaller or medium-sized city or, God forbid, a small town, it was it was just as you described. You would, you would try to stay awake long enough to get the final at night. Um, it may or may not be in the paper the next morning. Um, growing up in Kansas City, I can remember coming home in the afternoon and getting the Kansas City Star, and only then 
finding out the final of the game played nearly 24 hours ago because that was how slow things went. And I can remember talking to the the basketball announcer, Mike Breen, and we were communing about, um, commiserating about playoffs in the NBA where the only games you would see would be the weekend games. The, you know, the conference semifinals might be going on and you would see none of it. You would have to wait till the, yes. to the next day to see the paper. So it was, there was a lot more effort required on the part of sports fans in the, certainly at the beginning of the 1970s. Okay, so I'm going to tell you two quick things, and then I want to get on to a few football matters. So one of the things I'll never forget as a kid, um, I lived in a little town called Enfield, Connecticut, which was about halfway between Springfield, Mass., and Hartford. And so my parents got the afternoon paper out of Springfield, And so I would, oftentimes I'd race home from school in the sixties and I would race home from school because I was getting to be in 68, 69, 70, a huge Red Sox fan to the point that nothing else mattered a lot of times in the spring and summer in those years. And I would race home because that is how I would find out if the Red Sox won in Minnesota or uh, Anaheim or Oakland the previous night. Um, and you know, it was just odd when you think about the way it is now that very rarely, uh, if there's a sports event of consequence, very rarely do I go to bed without knowing who won the game. But I always went to bed as a kid, unless it was like a weekend and my parents would let me stay up. Uh, you know, but, well, I should also say that, you know, in those days, the vast majority of the sports events on the weekend were in the afternoon. They weren't at night. Right. That was sort of a different world. But the other thing I would say, I get a job at the Cincinnati Inquirer in 1980. And I will never forget, I was just a lowly guy on the desk for many Saturdays in my first year or two, sometimes it would send me out to cover a college football game, but sometimes I just work the rim editing copy and, and getting it ready, uh, you know, to send to press and just the phone was ringing all the time. Hey, who won Ohio state, Illinois? Hey, who won Michigan? Uh, you know, whoever I, it just, it never stopped. Never, never. And it got to the point where a couple of days when I was in there later in the season, as the scores would come out on the AP teletype, as the scores would come out, I would uh, write them down in front of me because I knew that everybody was going to want to know, hey, who won Miami of Ohio at uh, Ball State? Who mm-hmm. Because that we were close to them. Who won University of Cincinnati? Who won Ohio State? Who won Kentucky? Who won Purdue? So I'd write all the scores down. So as soon as they would go, okay, Purdue 16, Kentucky 10. I mean, you know, you're trying to get a job done. You don't want to be terribly rude, but it was just amazing how, you know, the 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 sort of the distribution of knowledge Mm -hmm. in sports has changed in the last half century. It was a wasteland back then. And, you know, I think that um, we have so much at our fingertips today. Yeah. You know, where there used to be just this drip, drip, drip. Now there's this fire hose. And the challenge <laughs> today 
is, you know, what do you, you know, I, I remember talking to Joe Posnanski about this. Suppose you have an hour a day to follow baseball. Where do you spend that hour? You know, and, and not everybody has an hour a day to follow baseball, right? And Joe helpfully recommended reading the Joe Posnanski substack, and that would be the way <laughs> to spend the hour a day. But I mean, now it's, there was a time where if you were a fan of the Detroit Tigers or the Atlanta Falcons or the Chicago Blackhawks, you could literally and easily read every single thing written about that team, you know, 10 minutes a day for a week. And now, you know, you could you could go weeks just reading what's been posted about the Atlanta Falcons today. So yeah. that's that's part of what's changed. Yeah. Michael, one of the things that you talked about in this book, that looking back on it, even I, as a burgeoning, gigantic sports fan, didn't realize until you hit me over the head with it, on or about page 37 of The Big Time. And that is, if you can imagine this, so I want the people who listen and who are watching this podcast to just understand how crazy what I'm about to say is. But on New Year's Day 1970, the Texas Longhorns won the Cotton Bowl and they beat Notre Dame and they won the mythical national championship that day and they won it and they won it without a single black player on the team that was an all white college football team a half century ago it wasn't 100 years ago it was 53 years ago yep okay and the way you write it i love the way you wrote this because you wrote it that At the end of that, there's Richard Nixon on the phone with Daryl Royal, the coach of the team. Ten days later, two basically fully integrated football teams, relatively speaking. Okay. The Minnesota Vikings and the Kansas City Chiefs met in the Super Bowl. Ten days later, they met in the Super Bowl. And what happened? Richard Nixon is calling, you know, the winning quarterback, uh, Len Dawson, after the game. And as you point out so well, the the Vikings had a lot of black players on the team. Kansas City had even more black players on the team. And in fact, they were from the a large many uh, many of them were from HBCUs. Because they had a scout named Lloyd Wells and Lamar Hunt uh, and Hank Stram were smart enough to say, hey, listen, we need the talent, all talent in football, not just all white talent. Can you just tell me a little bit about can you just tell me a little bit about how that, you know, disparity and weirdness hit you when you were researching this? I I think you're right. We were looking at football's past on January 1, 1970, and then 10 days later, football's future. Because the Chiefs were the first uh, team in pro football history in which a majority of the starters were black. So there was that. And to your point, yes. Um, under Hank Stram and Lloyd Wells, the, the first black full-time scout in pro football, 
the Chiefs were very aggressive about recruiting and drafting players from historically black colleges and universities. And, you know, it only makes sense. At the time that the AFL started, it was a new league. It was seeking talent wherever it could find it. I can remember talking to Lamar Hunt about this, and Lamar Hunt would be the first to tell you he was not some uh, you know, liberal progressive with this with this um, idealistic view. He just wanted to win football games. And therefore, you got to see this Chiefs team that was highly integrated. And the, the, the other fascinating thing to me was to find out, and this was, I didn't know this before I started working, researching this book, was to find out that Eddie Robinson, who'd already been at Grambling for decades, was close friends with both of those coaches. It's both amazing. Harold Royal, who we used yeah. to visit for Texas spring football camp, and also Hank Stram. And so it was... It you know, was, you told a story, Michael, by the way, that was really interesting about the Earl Campbell recruitment, Yeah, you know, at that time. And Eddie Robinson really wanted Earl Campbell, really yeah. wanted him. But at the end of the day, he went to Texas kind of broke Grambling's heart, but at that time, you know, schools like Texas were, you know, were starting to to acknowledge that, you know, we better recruit everybody. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that it was it was also a sign of the times that um African American players in the South who had normally gravitated to HBCUs because they had no choice began to sense broader horizons and more options. And that would lead them to a Texas and Alabama and Auburn schools that they couldn't have attended 10 years earlier. And, and so there was that change. And I, you know, the, the thing that struck me about Eddie Robinson was in the early seventies, he's at the height of his powers. Grambling games are replayed on television every Sunday. They're playing to sold out stadiums coast to coast. And yet even then Eddie Robinson knew the pipeline of elite talent was dissipating. And by the end of the decade, you know, the, I think, I'm not sure about this, but I think Doug Williams may have been the last first round draft choice out of Grambling. And that was however many years ago, 45 years ago. So one other thing that I thought was quite interesting in this book, and that is the fact that John Mackey, the tight end for the Baltimore Colts, who became the first you know, president of the NFL Players Association. Uh, and at the time, they honestly felt, as uh, Bill Curry told you, you know, they felt like they were treated like he used the word chattel, you yeah. know. And he, you know, so players really wanted to start to get treated better Tell me about the first meeting that the new president of the NFLPA, John Mackey, had with this all-powerful member of the NFL, Dallas Cowboys president, Tech Schramm. So, yeah, this was this was 1970. And there was, you know, the NFL players were were fighting for cost of living increases and um better terms in their pension and just the sort of things trying to catch up with the major league baseball players association, because they had a stronger union and had a, had a better deal across the board. And um, Mackey was going to meet tech Schramm, 
who was the head of the uh, player relations committee for for the owners. And you know Tech Schramm. He was gruff person, generally heard before seen, um, very much like the sound of his own voice. And he was, I think, although he was definitely innovative and a visionary, we would also describe him as someone with old school sensibilities. And so uh, it being 1970, John Mackey showed up for this meeting in a purple velvet jumpsuit. <laughs> and upon seeing Mackey, Tex uh, snorted in disgust and said, you know, what are you doing here in a, coming to the meeting in a purple jumpsuit? And John Mackey, who was very smart and very quick, said, you know, I could ask you, what are you doing coming into a meeting wearing white socks? And <laughs> Tex looked down at his at his shoes and he said, well, I like white socks. And John Mackey said, well, I like purple jumpsuits. Let's get to work here and start this. <laughs> that was awesome. You know, what, what, what also really hit me about reading some of the football stuff in here, you know, there was this, I, I sense this, from reading back at the time when you would have, this was in all sports, where there would be some at that time, and it seems like not 54, five, six, seven years ago, it seems like 500 years ago, that there was some fear that the black and white players wouldn't get along Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, there would be a lot of tension between Mm -hmm. the black and white players. But you found almost the exact opposite, talking to Willie Lanier, Bobby Bell, a lot of these guys from the Kansas City Chiefs that, you know, if you look at the composition of that team, they had so many important, really good black players. So what did they say about sort of whether there was harmony, whether there was strife in the locker room? Well, I think with the the case of that Chiefs team, and it was a special team. I've I've written another book about that team. Um, they they went through a lot in in Kansas City in the late '60s. But I think with that particular team, one of the things that both the white players and the black players agreed on was that, to the extent that a white head coach in the National Football League in 1970 could be colorblind. Hank Stram was pretty much colorblind. And so he didn't he didn't play favorites. He was, I can remember uh he gave Sandy Stevens a tryout, um, black quarterback in the 60s when a lot of other pro teams wouldn't wouldn't give Sandy Stevens a look. Um and I think that there was also a sense of that team spent so much time together um because Stram's practices were notoriously long. And those players were dealing with each other, also dealing with a time of intense racial strife throughout the country. And there were, you know, I can remember talking to players about the night shot in 1968 and Chiefs players actually having a dialogue about it. The black players trying to make the white players understand what MLK meant to them. Um, and and so that was that was a case of people actually conversing, people actually listening. And that clearly brought that team together um, for that great run at the end of the 69 season, culminating in the, in Super Bowl four in 1970. 
Mike, I want to bring it full circle to today and ask you, you've had a fairly poignant uh, section late in the book with Doug Williams talking about how happy he was and not necessarily happy in a way, ha, 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 black players are better than white players. It wasn't that. Mm. It was all once you just simply judge players for players, that's when we've made great progress. And he was just thrilled Mm. on the day that it became apparent after the championship games last year that Jalen Hurts, black quarterback, was going to meet Patrick Mahomes, black quarterback, in the Super Bowl. And although, you know, the score could have been 49 to 7, the fact that it is clearly one of the great football games in Super Bowl history Mm -hmm. and the fact that both of these quarterbacks gave all-time performances. Emptied the tank. Oh, it was just, it was, that was a great football game. But just tell me a little bit about Doug Williams, who, you know, obviously played one of the great Super Bowls in Super Bowl history in 1987, uh, leading Washington over Denver in a truly dominant performance. What was Doug Williams like witnessing what happened last year? Well, I think you got to go back to the the context again of the 70s. And if if I was trying to do anything with this book, it was showing that the shape and the contour of where American sports is today was directly influenced by the events of the 70s. And so on one hand, Doug, Doug Williams was a story of the NFL coming to grips that there could be an African-American quarterback who would be a blue chip prospect and picked in the first round. And yet talking to Doug Williams about the player who wasn't taken in that same draft, Warren Moon, who'd been the Pac-8 MVP and the Rose Bowl MVP. And I can remember, you know, the the attitude about Moon being, well, maybe he's a rollout quarterback. And, and Warren Moon said, you know, he thought that was probably code for something else. And yeah. I can remember talking to Shaq Harris who um, had preceded Doug Williams at Grambling. And Shaq Harris's point was, you know, it's not like Warren was hard to evaluate. (laughs) He's 6'3", had a strong arm. So I think what Doug Williams saw was he saw what James Harris had gone through. He saw what was going on with him and and with Warren Moon. And then to go and have the success he had, and win a Super Bowl and see what that meant to Eddie Robinson and so many other um, coaches and players from HBCU schools. And then to follow that line, that narrative arc all the way through to 2023, when a hundred million people are watching two of the best quarterbacks in the game play to your point, one of the great Super Bowls of all time. It felt like, a a testament to the distance traveled, which doesn't mean everything's great now, but it does mean that that we've come a long way. Yeah, it just, I just find books, it's so interesting, I think, Michael, that books about the history of sports, particularly history that, that I have seen and been involved with 
you know, very peripherally, you know, mostly as a fan, I always find it really, really interesting that I learned so much that I didn't know. And this book, the thing I always think to myself, if you can write something that will stick with a reader forever, Mm -hmm. you've done your job. Like if I, I sometimes run into people who say, hey, man, that story you wrote about a week in the life of NFL officials. I'll never forget you having uh, dinner at Sterator's house and he made you pasta or, so, you know, whatever. Yeah. It, it, things like that, you know, really are interesting to me. But I will just always remember January 1, 1970 and January 11, 1970 and the juxtaposition. And the reason I'll remember that is because the dates are so easy. Yep. How could it be easier? January 1, January 11, they're separated by 10 days. Exactly. And a gigantic amount of racial progress in that just in that 10 day period. Certainly. Yeah, certainly. And I think that, you know, so, so much happened in the decade of the 70s. Obviously, every decade brings change. But when you look at the uh, when you take a long look at what happened in the 70s, you've got sports moving to prime time on network television with Monday night football opening the doors for other sports. The World Series a year later had its first primetime game. The Olympics began going on every night on primetime. NCAA men's basketball tournament started on primetime in 73. So you had that. The integration piece we've talked about in the 70s, I think integration in sports became more the rule than the exception at a time when uh, you could argue that the rest of American society was was lagging behind. You got the economic emancipation of athletes through free agency, which started in 76. And then the, you know, the thing that we haven't really touched on, but might be the most important of all during the decade was the unprecedented involvement of women in numbers unimagined previous yeah. as athletes, as coaches, as administrators, as writers, and how much that's changed. And the the conclusion I reached is by the time you get to the end of the 70s and the launch of ESPN, you can begin to make out the broad outlines of what sports would become today, which is arguably one of the last big tents in American popular culture. Yeah. That's such a great way to put it. It's such a valuable contribution, I think, uh, Michael, to the sports universe to kind of put this all in one place. And I mean, you know, I'm holding it. You you never write a thin book, by the way. (laughs) Never. Like, okay, for people who are watching this, you know, on the NBC Sports YouTube page, just this is the big time, okay, by Michael McCambridge. And as usual, it's going to take you a few late nights to read this. I'm just in fairness. In fairness, the last about 100 pages are source notes and bibliography. Yes, you're right. You're right. You're right. But (laughs) still, Michael, admit it. You never write a thin book. No, guilty as charged. (laughs) Well, I will say this. You know, your, your Kansas City football book, you know. The 69 Chiefs. Yeah. 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 Which was, which was, you know, had some of the greatest photographs that you've ever seen. The I great mean, Rod Hanna, yes. I, it was, it was awesome. I mean, that wasn't the thickest book, but I will say that book, of all the books you've ever done, that was the most vivid 
yeah. you know, pictorially. And it was just, it, I, I'll tell you one thing, that's a book you can take out and spend two hours with a glass of brandy yep. and look at those photos and say, oh my God, those were the days. I was so glad to get that between hardcovers and to get to get Rod Hanna's work in there because it was, you know, so much of it was intimate. There was a great shot there of the the Chiefs coming off the field at Mile High Stadium and all the fans raining down and pelting them with snowballs um, after a muddy game in October of 69. Yeah. Hannah was, Hannah was a master and, and uh, I was so happy to get his, to get his work and, and have it associated with, with that book. It was wonderful. Michael McCambridge offer author of the big time, how the 1970s transformed sports in America by grand central press. Michael McCambridge, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Peter. Always great to talk with you. My thanks to Michael McCambridge. And as always, my thanks to uh, Miles Simmons. And Miles, before we close, I know it was before your time. But when you think of all the things that happened in the 70s, which started with an all-white team winning the college football championship and ended with the birth of ESPN. How possibly could there be a more momentous decade, you know, with all the things in between, baseball free agency, the union in football getting so much more powerful, the explosion of television, the Monday, the birth of Monday night football, the birth of primetime sports, period, which is all we experience basically now. The vast majority of sports, huge sports events are in prime time. But I bet sometimes you think about that and you wish, man, I wish I was around in the 70s. <laughs> I wish I were around in the 70s for music, too. Like, there was some really <laughs> good music released in the 70s. Are you kidding me? Stevie Wonder's run of five yeah. albums that he got. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there, there, there are some things that I wish I were alive in the 70s for, but I'm good with the stories. <laughs> Uh, Miles Simmons, thanks so much for joining me, and thanks for to everyone uh, who has either listened, experienced, watched on NBC Sports YouTube, YouTube channel, uh, the Peter King Podcast. We will be back next week. I'll be back in my home base next week, and we'll be back next week with another edition, another episode of the Peter King Podcast. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Selling smoothies is what I do, but for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. 
He's a small business owner, too, so he knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.